to the Retail Transformation Show with me, Oliver Banks. This is your weekly podcast, delivering you the insight, ideas, and inspiration to successfully change and transform in our ever-evolving world of retail. Enjoy listening. Well, hello and welcome to the Retail Transformation Show. My name is Oliver Banks and I am a retail change and transformation specialist. I'm a consultant and advisor, and I work with retail companies, whether that's bricks and mortar retailers, e-commerce retailers, or omnichannel retailers, to help identify their ideal operating model, and then define, develop, and deliver the change roadmap that brings that operating model into reality, driving profitability and customer experience. Thank you so much for tuning in today. This one is episode 196, number 196. At present, we face a whole string of important decisions to make, and they're coming at us with increasing frequency, it seems, as the pace of change increases and markets become more intense. So I think it's really important to consider how we make decisions how we can avoid some of the common challenges with decision-making, what we can learn from expert decision-makers inside and outside the retail industry. And that's exactly what we are doing today. We're going to be learning from world-class decision-makers to become a better decision-maker. The show notes are over at obandco.uk slash 196 where you can also sign up for the Retail Transformation Briefing, an excellent decision, I might add, (laughs) where you can keep your finger firmly on the pulse of the ever-evolving world of retail with key intel and insights that happen every single week. And it's really astonishing. Some of that innovation is not necessarily always where you would expect it. Plus, also find out about the upcoming Productivity and Transformation live event. It's happening in September 2022. And if you're a retailer and you're focused on transforming your operating model, boosting productivity and driving growth, then it would be great to have you there alongside 100 other retailers. Find out more on the show notes over at obandco.uk slash 196. And just before we do dive into the new content today, if you've not checked out the last episode, episode 195, an episode called The Anatomy of a Decision, then do check that one out as well. It's not a requisite to listen to that episode before this one, but if you are into decision making, then do check out both of these episodes for sure. So let's get into it. And we're going to start with some of the challenges of decision making. In no particular order, but we are going to start with perhaps the most common challenge, or at least the most commonly perceived challenge, and that is the fact that sometimes we face decisions where there is no obvious answer. We run the business cases, they come out the same. We weigh up the pros and cons, you can't tell the difference. What do you do? This is perceived to be the most common challenge. It's the one that gets people scratching their heads. And it's good that you are facing decisions like this because it is encouraging you to think more deeply. It is encouraging you to really challenge all of the different data points that you have, challenge the different experts that you have available, and ultimately find out 
what truly is the best answer? And if it is so, so close, then you're in luck. You're probably faced with a couple of different options. And even if there is a, another option where you can blend together these different routes. But it does happen. And today we're going to be talking about some of the things that you can do to take on these challenges. Another challenge is always needing more information, more data, more intel, more options. And this is related to that very first one where you can't quite decide. And what's happening here is there is an intense fear of failure. You are trying to procrastinate and not make a decision because you don't have enough information. You need more intel before you can decide what's best. We'll be definitely talking on that a bit later on. The next challenge is the fact that you need to make difficult decisions. And with upcoming financial challenges aplenty, I suspect there will be more difficult decisions that need to be made. Whether that is talking about job cuts and redundancies, whether that is shutting down sections of your business, whether that is perhaps even selling out or processing through an administration phase. There are no easy routes through some of these tough decisions. So it's important to be on top of our game. And ultimately, it is tough at the top. We can't expect every decision to be an easy one. And we'll get into that a little bit later on as well. The next challenge is that you're not even aware of what decisions you are making. Now, this is not going to be a perceived challenge because you are <laughs> unaware, right? But this is being thoughtless, frankly, about what's happening and naturally meandering through life, not taking control of the situation in front of you. Now, what happens here is you are missing a whole load of opportunities. You're probably opening yourself up to many different threats in the future, and you're going to really reduce the likelihood of actually achieving your strategy. Now, the telltale sign here is that if you think decision making is something that happens very occasionally, perhaps only at a monthly governance meeting, and that you think that decision making is only something that happens when you are in a decision making mode or phase, then you're probably in this place. Decision making is happening all of the time. It's a never ending loop. So don't be caught being unaware of what decisions you are making because you are making them. The next challenge is around confusion over decision making ability and process. So back in 2012, the Harvard Business Review surveyed a whole bunch of CEOs and their C-suite executives. And the ask was to rank the clarity on their decision process from one to seven, where seven is perfectly clear and one is absolute chaos, right? And what happened here is that the CEOs ranked their decision process clarity as 5.62, so pretty high, whereas the execs ranked it much lower at 3.86. So 5.6 versus 3.9, let's say. So the CEOs, the decision makers, thought they had much better clarity on their decision process compared to their executives. And without a real honest view on your process and your decision-making approaches and attitudes, then you're either going to reach an impasse or you're going to end up destroying motivation and pulling apart your team. The next challenge is not being sure who is making the decision. This is almost an offshoot, perhaps, of your clarity or lack of clarity. And further than just who is 
when and how and where are decisions all being made? You know, are you thinking it's a single person that is making the decision or is it a community-based decision where you are looking to reach a consensus or some sort of vote? And another offshoot from here is that you may be taking more decisions at the wrong level than you need to. Perhaps you think every minute detail needs to be signed off at the highest level and consequently you significantly increase the number of decisions that are being asked of the CEO or of the board and that just slows the whole business down in fact when actually maybe there is a decision that needs to be made and then someone lower down in the business needs to step up and say actually I have decision making authority too and this is the way we're going. Another challenge is the fact that you may get ongoing debate and inability to make decisions which tears apart the team. Last time we spoke about the concept of disagree and commit, but this is hard in reality, especially if you are passionately a believer for one of the undecided routes. And if this is the case, then you may have committed or someone may have committed in word only, but in thought and in turn deed, they're not there yet. Bad vibes could hang around. People could feel victimised. My idea wasn't chosen. No one ever listens to me, etc, etc. You get the idea. An offshoot from that is to be thinking that decision making is about the individual, not the idea. And consequently, when critiques are made about the idea, you or someone else might feel like it's a personal attack. And that in turn is going to make you or someone else and probably the whole business, really nervous to share ideas, share thoughts, share honest opinions. And if you are leading and you are not recognising that this is a problem, that's a big challenge too. Another challenge is not recognising bias. Now we all have bias, and that may exist in the moment of decision making, or even in the moment in preparing for that decision. Bias is a preconceived idea. It is as it would suggest, a natural leaning one way or another towards a particular course of action or a particular idea. Maybe you have a bias against change, at which point you're always going to be leaning towards the status quo, for example. Now, authors Daniel Kahneman and Olivia Siboney in Noise had a great example of this, with a bias that you don't even recognise exists. Take the example, if you are considering candidates for a new job role, as you are discussing those candidates in a selection committee, if the first person pipes up and says, I'd really like candidate A, or I do not like candidate B, one or the other, whichever way, what's going to happen is that it's much more likely, whatever that viewpoint is, that the rest of the group will follow in that same thinking. It makes it much more likely that people will agree with that same sentiment, or at least not disagree. So bias is massive. And if you haven't read Noise, it's a great read or listen. So do check it out. And then the final challenge about decision making is to be focusing on topics that we know a lot about, but aren't the important topics to be having a conversation about. We are comfortable in our circle of knowledge and nervous if we don't already know the answer. And the tendency here is to focus in on the wrong conversations, the conversations that we enjoy but aren't actually the critical conversations to have. I've definitely seen this happening in a number of different high-profile meetings where everyone gets very passionate about 
a topic that isn't worth their time, frankly. So not facing into this means that those important topics don't get discussed and therefore you don't make a decision and therefore you are either choosing the status quo or you are making a rush decision and not taking the time for really analysing and thinking about the hard decisions. And then maybe you'll be complaining about the fact that you can't decide which is the best option, right? <laughs> Back at our first challenge. So there are loads of different challenges with decision making. And these, frankly, are just some of them. I'm sure you've got your own reflections, your own experiences and your own thoughts about what challenges you face. I would love to hear them. And if I can help you through, do reach out. Oliver.banks at obandco.uk. That's Oliver.banks at obandco.uk. So if those are some of the challenges that us mere mortals face on a daily basis when it comes to decision making, I was curious. What about the world class decision makers? Who are they? What do they do differently? as expert decision makers, and what can we learn from them? So we're gonna start with a retail example, and then very quickly, we're gonna get way outside of retail. And there are gonna be more opportunities to learn and take in more intel. So do head over to the show notes and you can find out links to go further, deepen your own knowledge, obandco.uk slash 196. So we are starting with Jeff Bezos of Amazon, of course. And Jeff has been pretty outspoken with decision making. In particular, he references the concept of a day one company rather than a day two company. A day one company is a startup. They're curious. They're open to risks whilst being careful and calculated. Day two companies, a little further down the line, they know everything about the market. They know everything about their own business. And consequently, they are adverse to risks because they don't want to rock the boat, right? So what happens is that day two companies make high quality decisions slowly. They want to understand. They want to involve experts. They fear failure. But day one companies, when it comes to decision making, they want to be energetic. They want to be dynamic. And in the words of Jeff, make high quality, high velocity decisions. So how do you become a day one company? How do you become a high quality, high velocity decision maker? Firstly, you never use a one size fits all decision making process. And Jeff here recognizes that many decisions are reversible, two way doors, he calls them. And equally, some decisions use a lightweight process rather than a full, heavy analytical process. Jeff also advocates not to wait for the perfect information, the perfect decision. In a shareholder letter, he once wrote, most decisions should probably be made with somewhere around 70% of the information you wish you had. And he goes on, you need to be good at quickly recognizing and correcting bad decisions. If you're good at course correcting, being wrong may be less costly than you think. So really insightful here. So if you're waiting for 90% of the information, even 100%, then you're probably being too slow with your decisions and you're going to be leaving a whole load of benefits and cash on the table. But equally, if you are good at staying in touch with what's happening and you can course correct, then you don't need to worry about making a bad decision. Next, 
Jeff is a huge believer in the phrase disagree and commit and says it will save you a lot of time. We spoke about disagree and commit last time. So if you've not checked out the last episode, go and take a listen right now. And then the final tip that Jeff Bezos would make about decision making is that you need to recognize true misalignment issues early and deal with them. Sometimes individuals or teams or even whole divisions within a business will have a different objective and therefore a different approach and viewpoint. And that misalignment isn't going anywhere. You cannot solve it unless you completely rewrite the organization, which probably for a single decision is not necessarily the right option, depending on what that decision is, of course. So you need to escalate this misalignment. You need some arbitration almost to be able to take it in, consider the different viewpoints and ultimately make a decision as to which route is the right route. So a few lessons there from Jeff Bezos. Moving on, another big decision maker who again has been quite open about how he has made decisions in the past is Barack Obama. And he wrote a whole Medium article on the topic actually with the direct quote, one of the first things I discovered as president of the United States was that no decision that landed on my desk had an easy, tidy answer. The black and white questions never made it to me. Somebody else on my staff would have already answered them. Now, this is a really interesting viewpoint, and maybe you feel like this as well. You never get an easy decision to make. And that's good in many ways, right? We were talking about all the tiny decisions being pushed up to the wrong level. If you are never facing an easy decision, that's a good sign. And it's probably a sign that you're in the right place as well, right? President Obama continues, Every tough decision came down to a probability. Then certainty was an impossibility, which could leave me encumbered by the sense that I could never quite get it right. Now, this is another really interesting quote. He recognises tough decisions are everywhere and that you could never get that perfect information, that perfect decision. And to the earlier points, if you are getting a perfect decision, you've probably been far too slow. So what did he do about it? A number of different thoughts. He listened to others. He surrounded himself with experts, with deep functional knowledge, or those that had more experience in a particular topic, as well as those that had less experience or a completely different background. And in meetings, he would ask everyone, and I mean everyone, what their view was. He was keen to genuinely listen and get a well-rounded view. And asking for all these different thoughts gave lots of varied opinions into the meeting. And he recognises that that encouraged himself and all of those around him to think harder, to be a better decision maker. He found it important to get everyone onto the same page, similar to what we were talking about a couple of minutes ago about misalignment. So he would collect the relevant parties to head into a decision rather than avoiding conflict. He was aware of blind spots and open to feedback from those around him. He found it useful to create space to think and let the subconscious do more work rather than finding his own conscious brain going over and over the same data, the same information to try and come to a decision. And then finally, linked closely to that, was that he found family time hugely important to declutter and to 
in his words, restore equilibrium in his head. And I think that would have helped him focus on what's really important for the United States and for the world as he made those important decisions. Another great leader who made some huge decisions was Winston Churchill, of course. Now, it's said he was never afraid to make a decision and he always took personal responsibility for the consequences of those decisions. And he respected that in others as well. In fact, it's also said that he measured success in people in how resilient they were. How did they deal with failure? How did they get themselves back up and move on after that failure? He recognised that failure was natural. It happens. And with that attitude, he tried to make it less intimidating to make a risky decision, suggesting that you can always learn from an experience regardless of the outcome. Now, of course, some of those decisions that he was making, and I'm sure those around him were making, were huge back in the day. But he also recognised and understood that many individuals and many businesses and organisations were, and still are, let's be honest, resistant to change. And it's easier to stay stagnant than to act on a decision, i.e. people choose the status quo option naturally, as we were talking about in the last episode. So check that one out. And a couple of direct quotes from Churchill. In the First World War, he was stated saying, there are plenty of good ideas, if only they can be backed with power and brought to reality. Hinting that execution is so important, as we were talking about last time. And he furthered that in World War II, and I quote him saying, I never worry about action, but only about inaction. In the book Churchill on Leadership, author Stephen Hayward suggested that Churchill had three hallmarks for decision making. Firstly, always keep the central aspect of the problem in sight. Secondly, understand how to balance both sides of a decision. And thirdly, have the ability to change course if new facts present themselves. So some really important thoughts there from Winston Churchill. Moving away from individuals, I wanted to focus on a couple of different roles here. And firstly, let's take a look at doctors, medical doctors, and in particular, those in the emergency room, taking patients in of an unknown quantity and quality, unknown challenges, and they have to make a decision, and they are important decisions. And actually, this sort of clinical decision-making in the medical industry is recognised to be different between an emergency and a non-emergency situation. Emergency situations are time short. They're critical. There is a severe threat of death or a long-term impact. Whereas, of course, a non-emergency situation, you have more time. You can collect more data. It's probably a less important decision that you're making. So for the purposes of this conversation, we are focusing on those emergency situations a crisis, which of course does happen. And we do need to react quickly with decision-making. We can't find ourselves as the sort of the proverbial rabbit in the headlights. So what emergency doctors do is they consult a mental model for decision-making. And Biomed Central share a model that is A to H. It's a familiar model so that in the moment, you can just work your way through, right, A, B, C, etc. right? So it's comes naturally, even if you are in the most stressful, most demanding situation, you can still work that way through the model rather than trying to remember what was 
the framework or whatever. <laughs> so let's just quickly go through the A to H, because actually, I think if you are facing a crisis, there are lessons here to take into the retail industry. A, awareness of the situation. Think about what am I looking at here? What's the quick assessment? How much time do I have to think? And what does the near future look like? You know, the next perhaps day or week, right? In a retail industry, of course, if you're a doctor, it's probably what are the next five minutes, next 20 minutes look like. So A, awareness of the situation. B, basic support measures. Here you are managing the immediate issues, the immediate problems. The first aim is to save the vital signs. And the second aim is to save the important organs needed for ongoing life. How do you do this? Really, it's all about pattern recognition. It's about knowing the signs. You know what you need to do. We are not talking about data gathering. You are not taking the time to do scans and detailed examinations. This is quick, basic support measures. C is about controlling the potential threats. Here, you need to be considering what could happen. And you recognize that things can escalate out of control quickly. So what's happening here is that you are looking to rule out the worst case scenario. What is it you can do to stop that really bad situation happening? In D, it's about diagnostics, collecting data. And actually, you'd start in the medical world to approach a hypothetical deductive medical model where you start to look at medical history. You do some examinations and investigations, but you may not get to a full understanding. So by the time you're at this stage D, you've stemmed the proverbial literal flow of blood, right? And you are starting to think about what is the root cause here? What is happening? What do I need to do to resolve this? E is about emergency management. Using the data about the patient that you've gathered in the diagnostic stage to decide on and deliver relevant treatment within the emergency setting. So maybe that's the accident in emergency department or the emergency room, right? F is then thinking about further care. This is about carefully planning what's next. And this is likely to include longer term treatment that isn't considered to be in the emergency setup. And it will also include what ongoing observations or checkups and check-ins are also going to be needed to make sure that things don't get out of control. G is about focusing on groups of interest. These are those with special considerations, maybe pregnancies or the elderly or disabled. But in a retail setting, depending on what your decision might be, this could be particularly challenged stores or categories that you know are in a fragile place or even high value customer groups, right? Could be any number of things. What's a group of interest for you and your decision. And then finally, H is about highlights and feedback, reflecting on the learning and building a reservoir, which I love, building a reservoir of knowledge and skills and attitudes. So lots of interesting thoughts about emergency decision-making there, but also research into clinical decision errors has showed that errors were more likely to occur get this, really interesting, when trying to blend theory and practical elements and experience. And what happens here is really we're making a judgment error. We're not thinking about how things work together. So I'd ask, do we find ourselves individually guilty of doing this? 
how can we add more diagnosis and tests in to minimise the likelihood of an incorrect decision at this moment, but within the crisis framework, shall we say? So lots of good thinking about decision making in a medical environment. But I'd also like to think about an armed forces environment as well, where special forces in particular are making a huge number of key decisions, literally life and death, like the medical industry, of both themselves, their colleagues, their teammates, as well as their enemy and civilians as well, of course. And what's quite interesting here is I was researching the US Marine Corps view themselves as decision makers. Their training material states that as Marine Corps officers, we are primarily decision makers. Our weapon is the unit we command. We decide on a course of action and then clearly communicate that decision to our unit. Our Marines translate that decision into action. So really interesting thinking there. Primarily decision makers is how they view themselves. And actually, they recognise two modes of decision thinking, analytical and recognitional. So analytical, firstly, this is where you have time to think. You can justify the decision, gather data, take input from subject matter experts. And recognitional is a crisis where there is no time. And it requires lots of experience and lots of courage as well on the part of the decision maker. And ultimately, they recognise that it allows you to maintain initiative against the enemy. So you don't procrastinate, you don't miss out on that opportunity, and you don't get stung by the threat. And a key tool to help with decision making against both of those types of decision thinking is that of wargaming, where they practice all scenarios, they do drills, they play out different situations, different outcomes, what could go wrong? How could the enemy react? And they have backup plans. And wargaming is all about having a plan that can adapt, knowing what you are going to do in any given situation, such that that recognitional uh, decision thinking is a little bit more automatic. When things go wrong, the Marine Corps believe that what's happened is that someone has fallen in love with their plan. Have you fallen in love with your plan? Have you made it so perfect that you can't deviate away from it? Again, I'm sure we can all reflect on times where we have perhaps been a little bit too amorous with our own ideas, right? <laughs> so they recognise that you cannot plan for the perfect moment. And actually, there are seven different variables happening around decision making at any given moment in time. And all of them are happening all of the time. So chance is one of these variables, a recognition that luck happens, right? There are things that go our way and don't go our way, particularly in a chaotic environment such as war. They think about risk being the fact that the future holds more than one outcome, more than one result, more than one route, which is really interesting. They think about information as a variable. You can have too much information, which takes time to gather and it clogs up our brains. But equally, you can have too little information and you are basing a important decision on nothing. Time is another variable, a constraint which you may be in control of, or it may be implied and put upon you by the enemy or the situation. And it impacts, of course, all of the other variables. Uncertainty is another variable where you have an aim to attain the highest degree of precision. Experience, again, another variable gained through 
past exposure to similar events. So as they are doing wargaming, they are creating past exposure to similar events to boost the experience, to take that experience variable and make a best decision. And then finally, really interesting one here, a variable of human factors. The fact that we're all humans. There are external elements that are going on in our lives, in our heads, in our hearts that we don't recognise. So some interesting thoughts about decision-making from the Marines. And they also recognise that decision-making is a loop. And they have a model that says, observe, orient, decide, act. Observe, orient, decide, act. It's called the OODA loop. And it goes round and round and round because, as we were talking about earlier, decision-making is not just a one-off thing. It's a continual thing. As soon as you have acted, you are observing what's happening so that you can go through the loop and start again. And then finally, in an Institute of Government report analysing Margaret Thatcher's prime ministerial reign, they recognise that she was a, a true expert decision maker who faced a number of uncomfortable situations and scenarios and had to make a hard call on multiple occasions through her reign. They recognised several different lessons that helped her be an effective decision maker that I think we can take as well. She had a very clear set of values and priorities. No one misunderstood her strategy. And what that did was it created alignment within her organisation, her government. And people knew if it was a worthwhile decision to take to her. Also, she was known to be very bold, but also she recognised that it was not possible to do everything all at once. She tended to take one or two big topics at a time, rather than facing a proverbial war on all fronts. And so some of the bigger challenges she faced, such as reforming trade unions, were not attempted to be done in a one-hit wonder. They were done over the course of around 10 years. Lady Thatcher was known to be a master of detail, spending a long time doing background reading, background research, on the decisions that she needed to make. And she stayed connected to the decisions, following them through the implementation phase, rather than just making a decision and assuming it all happens to plan. And then finally, she was recognised for listening to advice from those around her, particularly at the start of her prime ministerial career. She may not have agreed with everyone's point of view. It's probably impossible to agree with everyone's point of view, right? But she listened, she understood, and she tested the different arguments as well. So I hope you will agree there have been plenty of golden nuggets that we can learn from world-class decision makers, experts in their fields. We need to recognise that decision making is an ongoing process. You make a decision, then you move on to execute, and that you recognise that things continue to change and you may need to make new decisions, including perhaps reverting older decisions or changing older decisions, but only when things change. Don't just wait to redecide later on, right? You need to make careful consideration relative to the amount of time that you have and that you may need to change your decision-making style in a crisis situation where you don't have the time. Also, in those crisis situations, you need to depend on more experience which you or others around you may or may not have. And if you don't have it, how can you bring this in 
for these severe times where you need that experience to be quick. You need to make justification about why a decision was made to help learn both for yourself and for others in the organisation. Otherwise, you're never going to really flex and hone that decision-making muscle for the whole team. You also need to think about decisions before they need to be made. You don't leave it to the last minute. Otherwise, you just won't have the time. You also recognise that there are decisions that are made for the short term and the long term, and that your solutions don't need to be a one-hit wonder. I'd love to hear your golden nugget takeaways from this episode, or if you've got other decision-making tips to share as well, reach out to me, oliver.banks at obandco.uk. And don't forget, there's plenty more reading to do on this topic, other articles from all around the world, all around the industry as well, about decision-making. You can find those links over at obandco.uk slash 196. Also on that page, of course, I give you three episodes of the Retail Transformation Show to check out next. So those three episodes are, if you've not already done so, the previous episode, episode 195, called The Anatomy of a Decision, where we lay out a framework for a process to go through decision-making. Next up, decision-making can be stressful. So in episode 182, you can learn how to overcome stress with science as we look at what you can do for yourself and for those around you to be more intentional to minimize stress, declutter your mind and make better decisions. And then finally, if you enjoyed looking outside the retail industry for inspiration, then why not check out episode 121, Lessons from Criminal Forensic Investigations. And there, we took inspiration from how the police would go about doing an investigation to help you consider how you go about doing a data-based investigation. So three great episodes there, plus lots more in the archive as well. So do take a scroll through. And if you've not already done so, do hit subscribe in your favorite podcast app. Now, head over to the show notes, catch those additional episodes, learn more about decision-making, and of course, Sign up for the Retail Transformation Briefing over at obandco.uk slash 196. Thank you so much for listening today. I really do hope you have enjoyed this quite deep dive into decision making a little longer than our usual episode length. And one final request, why not send this episode on to one of your colleagues, one of your contacts who you just know will appreciate it. I thank you and I'm sure they will too. Stay well. I will absolutely look forward to joining you once again on another episode of the Retail Transformation Show. Bye for now.